If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. <laughs> We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning as we continue unpacking the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, this kind of starts a new little series for us. Uh, we've been in chapter 7 for a while, which was a chapter that was, was devoted to uh, exploring relationships in the church. We talked about singleness and, and marriage and divorce. Um, and uh, one of the things that's happening in this letter right now is that Paul is responding to questions that they have written to him about. And uh, so chapter 8 marks uh, the next question in the line that he's going to respond to. Um, and so I want to read chapter 8, and then we're going to dig into this a little bit. Here's 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to, to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let me pray. Father, it is not often that we have conversations about the biblical ramifications of our diet uh, and what we eat, and this is certainly not a passage of Scripture that is primarily about that, but you are trying to teach us something in this, in this text. You're trying to help us. You are giving us, you're doing more than trying to help us. You are revealing to us what it means to live as as people who are accountable to each other. Would you, would you give us a humility of heart and spirit this morning to, to, to think about what it is that you're saying? Would you, would, your, would you use your spirit now to instruct our hearts and to give us uh, understanding uh, that comes from you? It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So he's talking about food, sacrifice to idols here in this passage of Scripture. And the question is, hey, can we eat that? <laughs> And, uh, you know, we live in this day and age of super Walmarts and things like that where if, if I want something to eat, I can just go to the grocery store, any number of grocery stores, and pick up whatever it is that I want. But back in Corinth, it, it wasn't that way. It wasn't like there were supermarkets on every corner. Um, and so one of the places that you could find meat for your diet is at the temple. Um, and there were these temples in Corinth that were completely devoted to the worship of pagan deities. And people would come and they would bring their animals and they would sacrifice them and a portion of that animal would be used for the sacrifice. And then there'd be all this meat left over and it would become also then a marketplace where you could go and you could buy 
fresh meat. And the conundrum, the, 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 the thing that they were asking was, as Christians, is that okay? And this is a great question because it spills over into a lot of areas of, okay, as Christians, what are we free to do and what is wise for us to do? Appreciate what Paul's doing here because he's calling these believers and, and us by extension into a critical thinking exercise. Think, he's saying. You, you need to think about this. You need to think about, okay, what's true? As a Christian, you're called to think. You're called to use your mind and to be always growing in your wisdom and in your understanding and your knowledge of Scripture. And there's a pitfall in this, and the pitfall is what? Is that the more we grow in our knowledge and understanding and our own perception of, of wisdom, the more we can begin to believe that we are more intelligent, more wise than the people around us, that, that my mind separates me from the people around me and actually elevates me, that I am something uh, of a wonder, really, you know, that, that if you could only access what's in my mind, you would, you would be in awe, you know, and, and, but this is in us, right, this, this idea, and, and all of us are this way, where we believe what we know and what we believe is superior and right, otherwise, why would we believe it? Why does it matter, though? Why is Paul even taking time to talk about this? And the answer is because there's power in what we know. There's power in knowledge. How we use what we know, whether it's true or false, impacts people around us. Is that true? What day is it? It's May 22nd, right? Yesterday was May 21st, otherwise known as the rapture, or I guess not the end of the world, but but uh, the day that Jesus would return and, and people would be seen flying up into heaven and earthquakes would be happening. And, and I gotta tell you, and I've, I've talked to some people about this this morning already, I can't, tell, I can't even begin to tell you how bothered I have been all week by this rapture prophecy. Understand, I haven't believed it for a second. But I have been so troubled by this all week long and the more that I look at what's happening online and Twitter and Facebook and things that people are writing in articles, the more and more and more tragic it becomes because there's groups of people who this is just fun. This is just a great way to make fun of religious people. I read one article. If you're a Christian, think about this for a second. I read one article where uh, a major news corporation where the author was trying to help the reader figure out a context for um, the people who were subscribing, the May 21sters, let's just call them the May 21sters, that he's trying to give a, give a con, uh, kind of a way to find them on the map. And he described them as, um, how did he say it? Exceptionally devout Christians. Think about that. People who believe this are kind of the exceptionally devout Christians. In his mind, we're all mainliners if we don't believe this. We're all just kind of liberal loosey-goosey, and this is kind of the, the extreme. That characterization of, of a Christian in America, ah, I did not like that. But there's also the other things that are happening, the stories then that are spinning off, because whether we want to admit it or not, there is something in every one of us in this room that is at least intrigued 
and in some way moved by the idea of, if I could know when the world would end and how, and I could prepare for that, would I not look forward to that? Would I not want that? This is the prediction of one man, all this stuff. One guy who came up with a uh, kind of a mathematical way of reading the Old Testament and trying to arrive at a date where the end of the world would happen and Jesus would return. One guy. And I'm not kidding when I tell you that the big, uh, kind of the, 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 the thing that makes the case strong for them is, is this is exactly 7,000 years to the date from Noah's flood. Okay. Thinking people in the room. When did Noah's flood happen? How do you know when Noah's flood happened? Is this the date of the first raindrop? Nashville's had a flood. We know something about floods, right? Is this the first raindrop to fall? Is this when the boat actually got buoyancy off the ground? Is this when the last bit of earth was covered? What is the date of Noah's, of Noah's flood? And how do you go back and even arrive at something like that? But then to crunch these numbers into, you can see that it bothers me. It bothers me. And the reason it bothers me is not because he was wrong. I knew he was going to be wrong. The reason it bothers me is because the premise behind the whole thing is that the Bible is a code book that God has given in a way to be intentionally deceptive and crafty and elusive and that only the super smart, only people who can arrive at this mathematical formula can really understand and then they can understand with certainty what God is going to do. And that offends me on, a, on, on the level of being a follower of God because that is not a statement about Scripture as much as that's a statement about God. Right? What is he saying? God doesn't want you to know him directly. He wants you to crack a code and then know him circumstantially or through the things that you arrive at. The problem is that this knowledge that this man has had of numbers and math and 7,000 years from Noah's flood has had power in the lives of Countless people, not just on Twitter and Facebook, but did you know that there are people who have sold everything that they had because the world was going to end, and the world was going to end, and they were certain that the world was going to end because he said, and I quote, let me find it here, uh, see he made this prediction in 1994 and it, and it, and it came and, and went, and then he said that uh, that was a mathematical error, um, and he added, I'm not embarrassed about it. Uh, it was just the fact that it was premature. But this time, he said, there is no possibility that it will not happen. So, you know, people quit their jobs and took one last pre-apocalypse tour of the U.S. to see the Grand Canyon. And one guy in New York City left his family, sold everything that he had to spend $120,000 on subway signs, um, announcing the end of the world all in. And uh, it's been just the butt of a big joke. But there are people today, thousands of people today, who are very, very confused. Didn't turn out the way they thought it was going to. 
and they feel alone and they feel alienated from God himself and they feel like fools and they're embarrassed. Why? Because I contend that this knowledge, false though it was, was used in a very profoundly unloving way toward people. It was used as a way of inciting and exciting and scaring people, as a way of creating sort of a only the elite are going to understand this. And now people, there's one church in California, I want to end this little story on a happy note. There's a church in California that their response to this, where this headquarters is, their response is that they're sending counselors to, uh, to this kind of hub where all these people were, were gathering uh, to counsel them through grief and depression um, now that the date has come and passed. Um, it's a sad thing, right? Here's a person who has some information. He has some knowledge. It's not true, but he has it anyway, and he's convincing with it, and so he brings it to bear and it has a powerful impact on the lives of lots of people, and one could even say a powerful impact on the world. So I ask you this question. That's an extreme example. Where in your life are you leveraging information and knowledge that you have to elevate yourself, to present yourself as somehow having power, as somehow having insight or some sort of weightiness to you that makes you superior, someone that people would come to and say, I want what you have. We've talked about an extreme example of this, but we do this, don't we? We have these things that we do. How do you employ the knowledge that you possess? There's a lot of ways that people do this, you know. Um, some of you are the person, I, th- I think I'm kind of this way. I'm the one that does uh, some random fact dropping without context. Like, I'm the guy who brings what I know to a conversation. It may not be what we're talking about. I'm the, you remember the movie Jerry Maguire from, like, forever ago? Uh, the human head weighs eight pounds, that kid? I'm kind of, I was kind of that kid, you know, where, like, there's a lull in the conversation. Uh, the human head weighs eight pounds, you know, I was, I was that guy. Um, some of us are know-it-alls. We just can't help but worm our way into whatever conversation is happening just to show what we know, to kind of establish ourselves as the experts in this. Some of us are the kind of the silent judgmental types, right? Where we just sort of let people have their foolish conversations, knowing better the entire time. And then when things implode, we kind of sit back and say, I knew that was coming, you know? That's still using knowledge in a powerful way, right? Using it as, as kind of a judgment over people. Then there's the self-deprecators. These are the people who... Uh, Consider yourself to be not really that smart, sort of, but you kind of don't really believe that about yourself. You just present yourself as that. And often that's just pride masquerading itself as humility. The reason we're talking about this is because there's a connection between what we know and how we relate to one another. That information has power. That I can't just know things without it having some sort of social, emotional, relational, spiritual impact on the people around me because we do things with the knowledge that we possess. Are you a person who looks at what you know as something that makes you better than the people around you? Or are you a person who looks at what you know as something that would be valuable to the people around you? How do you use it? To what extent do you believe your knowledge or intelligence affects the way you do relationships. Have you ever thought about this? It's important. It's an important question because the truth is that 
the knowledge that we possess, whether it's true or whether it's false, affects people. And so Paul is writing this. He's saying, look, you have this question and you want knowledge from me. You want information from me. You have this situation where you have, you live in this city where kind of your only access really to, to meet is to go and buy it at the temple. That's kind of where it's all coming from. And you have this dilemma now as people who have been bought by Christ out of this pagan culture, what do you do? And it's great because Paul is giving them this answer that is kind of an answer about the meat, but it's about a lot more than that. And his answer is kind of a, well, on the one hand, but then on the other hand. Let's talk about that. What is he saying? First, why is it important that they're even asking this question? I want you to just think about this for a minute because in our culture, we have these things, right? I grew up believing or not believing. I grew up being told that if, if I listened to John Mellencamp, bad things were going to happen to my soul. Rock music, the downbeat. You don't want to mess around with that stuff, right? I grew up in this, in this culture where there were a lot of things that people would look at and say, okay, that's, that's secular and by extension dangerous for your soul in a way that you might get uh, influenced, impacted, uh, affected, you know, without you even really knowing it. Like as you're listening to the music, the, the demons are taking residence in your heart. And we, we kind of laugh about that, but at the same time, think about this, though. Think about it with things that maybe aren't as, as funny, perhaps, as, as music, but think about alcohol. Think about, think about people whose lives have been, have been wrecked by the consumption of alcohol and the decision-making there. And people saying, alcohol is dangerous for you. It's a dangerous thing. And people attesting, yeah, it, it kind of wrecked my life. What do we do with that? How do we think our way through those things? This is important. There are people who are going to these temples to buy meat because they want meat to eat. And there are other people who are saying, we were rescued by Christ from paganism. We were so deep into this culture where we were worshiping and trying to appease all these false gods. And Christ has rescued and delivered us from that. Why would you want to have anything to do with that? Why would you even want to touch that with a 10-foot pole, let alone eat the meat that you know is available because somebody brought that animal to sacrifice it to this fake pagan god, and that's why the meat even is there in the first place. Do you see it? Do you, do you at least respect? You have to, right? We have to at least respect the situation that they're in because we're in it too. If you're a Christian in this room, one of the defining marks of Christianity is not how rigid and rule-bound it makes you, but how free it makes you. That if you're free in Christ, you are free in ways that are amazing. You're free to have a conscience that's clear, to know that your sins have been atoned for by Christ. You've been, you've been set free by Him, and yet we live in this culture where there are people who say, yeah, but I struggle with this. Christians who say, I struggle with this, I struggle with that. I struggle with anybody who would vote for that particular political party. I don't understand how you could do that as a Christian. And this is the world that we live in. And it's hard, it's hard to navigate this. Have you ever been in the checkout aisle? 
And you're, some of you are nodding already. Yes, I've been in the checkout aisle. <laughs> I have. I ha- that's really insightful. Um, and the checkout lady says, would you like to donate $5 to children's diabetes today? You ever had that happen? Or whatever it is? I hate that. Do you know why? Because I'm thinking, okay, I'm a Christian. I have four children. I love children. I hate diabetes. <laughs> this is going to get really expensive if I keep coming here because it's going to be like a $5 diabetes tax every time I buy groceries. And how am I going to do this? And I don't know if I can afford to do this anymore. I've got to buy it all at one time. You know, but, but what do you do? What am I supposed to do as a Christian? How do I navigate this? Can you drink wine? Can you watch TV? Can you go to movies? Can you dance? Can you play cards? Can you listen to music that isn't explicitly Christian? Can you drive a foreign car? Can you eat meat that didn't come from a farm in Franklin? I mean, that's bringing it home, right? Can, can you? And is this a Christian discussion? Is this something that we need to think about as Christians? How does Paul answer? He says, that's a good question. Let's not really talk about the meat, for starters. Let's talk about God, for starters. And let's talk about idols. And what does he say? He says, look, this meat that you're talking about, uh, there's only one God. This is what he's saying in, in the first verses of this. He's saying there's only one God. There's only one true God. Everything else you know is nothing. All these idols to these four, f- pagan gods, they don't exist. They're nothing. Therefore, thinking Christian, that meat was sacrificed to nothing. It's, it doesn't have pagan dust on it. it, doesn't, it, it it's not going to turn you into a pagan if you eat it because it was sacrificed to nothing. So think about that. That's the on the one hand. But it's a serious question. How do I live and move and have my being as a Christian in a pagan culture? On the one hand, God is who He says He is. He is one. And who God is and who we are in Him, this is the only structure that determines how we're called to live. So since God is the only God, and since we are united to Him in Christ, this is verses 4 through 6, by a bond that nothing in the world can break, you can eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. It won't pollute your soul. That's on the one hand. But then, so that's knowledge, right? On the other hand, though, Paul says, think about the people in your community, though. Think about the people that you're in relationship with. Think about their consciences. While Christians are free to eat meat, Paul is saying it's not the only question before you, really. Because not everybody in your own community of faith is going to share your sense of liberty. Some are going to have consciences that are bound by their former lives being so rooted in paganism that they can't imagine going near this. What are you going to do then? Some people who grew up believing that there were consequences for neglecting the appeasement of these false gods, and so you brought these sacrifices and remember doing this and being raised in this and being fearful that they would somehow be punished by these false gods if they didn't do this. How do you conduct yourself with them? Knowing these idols are nothing. 
Paul says in verse 8. What he's getting at in verse 8 is he says, Knowing these idols are essentially nothing, still, eating the meat according to your liberty doesn't earn you any commendation with God. God doesn't look at you and say, I like you better because you're willing to go ahead and eat this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. He's not, you don't get any bragging rights for that before God. He doesn't prefer the people who have this kind of liberty in their conscience. Because it's not about who can be the most liberated in their community. It's how can we take the knowledge that we have and bind it to the way we love our brothers and sisters. Paul's saying these things have to be together. Notice, he talks about weaker brothers, weaker consciences, weaker brothers and sisters, right? In this verse. And what's interesting to me is that he never really... um, talks about, hey, stronger brothers, here's how you need to handle your weaker brother. Here's what you need, what you need to do is you need to go to your weaker brother and you need to teach them why they need to have a stronger conscience. He doesn't say that in here. And here's why I think that's the case. I think it's because every last one of us is the weaker brother in this scenario. And what I mean by that is what I believe, I believe is the position of strength. What I, believe is, what I believe is right for a Christian to think. Otherwise, why would I think it? Why would you hold a position on something in the back of your mind saying, I know it's my position and I know it's lame and I know it's weak, but heaven help me, here I stand. I mean, we don't do that, right? We, we believe that what we believe is the right perspective. That's why we believe it. It's why we embrace it. It's why we live it out. So people who disagree with us, we look at them as somehow being weaker than us, that their consciences are weaker. And it can go both ways, right? We can say their conscience is weak and they just need to lighten up. They need to not be so rigid. Or we think their conscience is weak because they're so free and loose with everything, they need to, they need to rein that in a little bit and have some of this rigidity that, that, that sets me free to have a clear conscience at night. See, the point is, is that you're the, you're the stronger brother in every situation in your life. You hold your positions from a position of strength and you look at people who don't as being weaker than you because you believe that your position is the strong one. And Paul is saying to you, easy. Easy in the way that you live that out. Because like the prediction of the apocalypse, you might be wrong. Or you may be absolutely right on everything an intellectual level, on an informational level, you might be able to walk up to your brother and say, listen, I can eat this meat because it was sacrificed to an idol and an idol is nothing, therefore it was sacrificed to nothing, so it's not even really meat that was sacrificed to a pagan god. There is no pagan god. There's only one god. It's just meat. And you may be absolutely right. You are right, Paul's saying. That is, that is the truth. And yet at the same time, do you understand how you can be absolutely wrong in that? If it's breaking the conscience of the person that you're called to be in relationship with. Now, we can get really neurotic with each other in this. I just want to admit that right now. To try to figure out, okay, well then what are the rules? You know, I guess I can't do anything. I can't have a glass of wine because what if I'm having a glass of wine around somebody who uh, has a conscience that won't let them have wine and, and they have this history and this story we could spend a lot of time in the hypotheticals of trying to figure out, okay, what are all the scenarios that we need to address and establish rules for? But let me 
present perhaps another way to go at this rather than trying to figure out what all the rules are. Let me appeal to us to think, to be thinking Christians. And what I mean by this is how do we bind love to knowledge? How do we apply what we know to the way that we live our lives in relationships with other people? The first way is to be a person of the book. Read scripture. Study scripture. Know what's in here. Did you know that in Matthew, where is it? Matthew 24, uh, 28 to 36, or 34 to 36, it says this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Do you know the word says that? Do you know who spoke those words? Jesus. Jesus said, the end of the world, it will happen. When? I don't know. God knows that, and only God knows that. If we're thinking Christians, we're people of the book, then we understand things. God has given us information. He's given us a revelation of himself. You're not going to accidentally become a pagan, Paul is saying, by eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Thinking Christians, what about Christmas trees and jack-o'-lanterns? What do we do when they say, you know what, those actually have pagan origins? If you set up a Christmas tree in your living room, good luck. I believe what Paul is saying is, you can carve a pumpkin with your kids and not accidentally turn into a pagan. Think about that. Think about how this happens. Think about how God works. He says there's only one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, the Lord Jesus Christ, and through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So be a thinking Christian. Second, admit that any knowledge that you possess is incomplete. Now let me clarify that because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you can't be certain of anything. I'm saying you can absolutely be certain of things. God has been very clear in his word about certain things. He says, you know, if your faith is in Christ, his son... He has atoned for your sins and you stand before the Father as holy in His sight. There's no accusation that can be brought against you. You can know that with certainty. But does that mean that you know it completely? That you know everything that there is in the mind of God in providing His Son as your atoning sacrifice for your sins? No. We need to be humble enough to understand that whatever knowledge I possess is incomplete and that there are things that I might be wrong about. Not to take away from certainty, especially from biblical certainty in places where God has been certain. But if we're honest, there are many of us in this room. I'm one of them. I used to be a... I, I threw away a lot of secular music at one point. A lot. And it's gone. But I don't have a cassette deck anymore, so it's okay. <laughs> but I'm different now. My mind has changed, you know? But it's funny how it's changed. It's funny how it's not so much a question about Christian and secular music anymore as much as it's about truth and and falsehood and beauty and, you know. Humbly admit that the knowledge that you might possess is incomplete. Third, remember that you are, in the story of Scripture, you are Christ's weaker brother or sister. That's who you are in this scenario as you relate to Christ. He was always right, (laughs) 
Everything he did, everything he said, every motive behind every action of his was always, without exception, correct and right. And it wasn't just right, but it was driven by a profound love for you. He meets you in your weakness. He meets you in your brokenness from his position of strength. This is what he does. With all the knowledge that he possessed about every facet of our intense need for redemption and hope and strength, what did he do? He gave himself for us in love, denying his immediate rights to so much in order that he might build us up from the ruins of our own own brokenness. So that ought to humble us in our knowledge. Paul says knowledge puffs up. But if we can be people who are people of the book, who study and want to know, and understand that what we do know is incomplete in the grand scheme of things, and to understand that we are the weaker brother in the scenario of our relationship with Christ, our brother. And then fourth, we can care about the consciences of the people around us in the way that we apply our knowledge. We'll be binding our knowledge to love. And that's what Paul is calling us to. So I want to ask you this. When you think about your friends, do you know where they're weak? When you think about your close relationships and the people that you interact with and you bring your knowledge and the things that you know, do you know where your friends are weak? Do you know where they're struggling? I bet a lot of us would say, I I really haven't given it a lot of thought. I mean, I know what they struggle with. I know some of the sins that they struggle with or some of the things that they've asked me to hold them accountable for or whatever. But do you know where on that personal deep level they're weak? This doesn't mean that you need to let the legalisms of others, your friends, bind your conscience. You don't. Paul is calling us to be free, to be thinking Christians who are free. Um, He isn't calling us to let other people bind our consciences, but rather to let love be what binds our consciences, our consciences uh, to bind us to one another. So do you see what he's saying here? You've got this question about this meat sacrifice to idols, and you want knowledge, but it's really a community question. How do you conduct yourselves as Christians in this pagan world with these influences around you? And the reason you're asking about this meat is because it's calling all these things kind of into question. How do we do this? And Paul is saying, think about each other. Think about each other's consciences. Let love be bound to the decisions that you make. Pray with me. Father, you call us to freedom. There is just no question that you call us to freedom. You call us not to be bound by by legalism or by fear or by superstition or by false hope, but you call us to rest in you, to know who you are, to know that you have uh, sufficiently, perfectly met all of our needs. Um, Even when we don't understand everything that that means, even when we we know that we have not been uh, in your mind on those things, that we only have what your spirit reveals to us and what you show us and what you give us in your word. Still, Father, we know that you are at work and that you are calling us to know you and to understand what it means to walk as your people. And Lord, one of the things that it means for us is that we're not called to walk alone, but that we're called to walk in community. And so I pray that you would, um, that you would give us a humility and a, and a wisdom and a desire to care Uh, for the consciences of those around us, even as we seek to live as free people, as people who have been liberated by you. Protect us from from chasing after superstitions or being afraid of of, uh, 
ominous prophecies that aren't supported by your word. Father, we do pray for people around the country and maybe even here in this room who are uh, grieving uh, or, or at least discouraged or depressed um, over, the, uh, <laughs> over being here today. Um, uh, Father, thank you that you are the one who has a plan. Thank you that, that your son is coming again. Uh, thank you that we don't know when that's going to be. Um, but Lord, we ask that you would um, continue to draw our hearts deeper and closer to you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.